surprises. Uh, most of us love surprises, some of us don't. Some of us like things to just continue as they are, but most of us like surprises. Except perhaps 40-year-old uh, Christine Mawson. June 1999, she turned up at Pinderfields Hospital in Wakefield, England, with stomach pains after a night at the pub. She thought food poisoning, hangover, indigestion, uh, but the doctors on her arrival told her that the pains were in fact contractions. Christine is quoted as saying, when the doctor told me I was pregnant, I yelled at her not to be stupid and demanded a second opinion. 50 minutes later, her first child, Amy Jane, was born. Christine said she never suspected she was pregnant. Uh, she told BBC News, we may not have been ready, but we'd never send her back. I'm not quite sure how you could do that anyway, but uh, we may not have been ready, but we'd never send her back. Obviously, we didn't have a single thing, not a nappy, a bib, or a booty to our names. Uh, the new father uh, added, I was absolutely gobsmacked. We hadn't planned on having kids, but we're absolutely thrilled and love Amy Jane to bits. Now, talk about surprises. Uh, that really would be family dropping in unannounced, wouldn't it? Now, of course, that's not the way it is with most couples who have a baby. Most pregnant mums definitely know that they're having a baby. There's the morning sickness, the baby bump that just keeps growing, uh, the kicking, the discomfort, the ultrasound scans, the doctor's visits, and on it goes. They don't know exactly when, but they definitely, definitely know a baby is coming. And so they get ready, they go to classes, they organise the baby room, they buy the pram and the furniture and the clothes. Mum catches up on sleep, reads the books, and watches what she eats and drinks. The new parents look forward to it and every day is influenced by that approaching event. They don't know exactly when, but they definitely know they're having a baby and may get surprised, but they'll be ready. Now, it's the same with Jesus coming back. He's promised it. We know it's going to happen, we just don't know exactly when. And so we need to make sure that we're ready. To make sure that we're like most pregnant couples rather than like Christine Mawson and her husband. Jesus' return is not something that we wait for or only wait for. We need to get ready. The reality of that event makes a difference in how you live today. Now that's Peter's message here in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Make sure you're ready. Because in Peter's time, the false teachers who we met in chapter 2, they decided that the whole thing wasn't happening. Have a look from verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised Ever since our fathers died, everything's gone on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do you follow their argument? Uh, things have always been this way. Nothing has changed, and so there's no evidence that the world will end. It hasn't happened yet, so it won't happen in the future. Now, to be honest, that's the way science works. That, that's the scientific method. Scientific method makes future predictions based on repeatable events in the past. Science predicts that sunrise tomorrow will be at 5.36am. It's a prediction based on 
the pattern of previous sunrises. Science predicts that when you let go of an object, it's going to fall down rather than up. How do they predict that? Well, based on every previous time they've done that act, it's gone down rather than up. Now, that's all fine. The problem comes when you add to that prediction the conclusion that it's impossible for something extraordinary or unrepeatable to happen. It's never happened, therefore it never can happen. That's where the problem arises. In other words, that miracles don't happen. So I think these scoffers are pretty close to what today are scientific rationalists who say, if I can't see it, if I can't touch it, if I can't measure it, it can't be real. God's not behind it all. Uh, there's no such thing as a supernatural event. The physical world is all there is. It's never happened before. It won't happen in the future. Now, that's what lots of people today will say. But what's ironic, I think, is that the very, uh, their very observations about nature are evidence that God is in control, providentially caring for his world. Uh, they've said it themselves, everything goes on just as it always has since creation. The fact that our world does operate in a consistent, regular way is evidence that God is uh, provident. God is controlling our world. These scoffers are using God's ordinary means of acting in the world as evidence that he can't act in extraordinary ways. The evidence they use to say God's not active, I think, is actually evidence that he is active. Rain falls today, tomorrow. Why? Because God says so. Wounds heal because God says so. Atoms hold together because God says so. Plants grow, animals reproduce because that's the way God's designed them and the way they keep continuing to do that is evidence of God's providential hand. You see, scientific principles, the scientific method only works because God is behind the world making it operate consistently. Some people used to think it was strange that I could be a Christian and a science teacher. Uh, that somehow the two didn't go together. But, but the longer I go on, the more I reckon the opposite's actually true. The more you get to know God's universe and see, his, see its consistency and its intelligent design and uh, you see God's power. You see his intelligence and his purposes and his careful sustaining of his world. So, Peter has said that their observations are wrong. Uh, things are actually not the same as they've always been. So he wants to address their first observation. Things are always the same. Uh, and Peter says, oh, hang on a minute, things haven't always been the same. Uh, and he begins at creation itself. There's an example of God stepping out of the ordinary consistency. So look at verse 5. Uh, they say things always go on the same, but... These people deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. There's an unrepeatable event. But that's not all. Unrepeatable event number two. God did step into history. He did break the regular as clockwork working of the universe 
and he wiped everything out. Verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's thinking about Noah's flood. God made the world once and then he destroyed it once. And both of those broke into that regular, always the same functioning of the earth. And if he's done that once, why wouldn't he do it again? He's proved their observation wrong and now he proves their conclusion is wrong. Verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Three events. The same powerful word that spoke creation into being, destroyed it with water, will one day destroy it with fire. But those, these scoffers, they think it'll never happen. And they say everything is consistent and the same the way it's always been. Uh, evidence that things will stay that way. Reminds me of a kid's story. Think of Pinky the pet pig. Pinky had heard on the grapevine that pigs were only kept by humans for one purpose, for eating. But Pinky, she was so pleased with her owners because they didn't eat her. They, they kept feeding her. They kept spoiling her month after month and she just enjoyed all the attention and the food and, and she got more and more contented and comfortable and as time went on she grew to doubt that anything bad would ever happen to her because it hadn't yet and because her owners just spoiled her she thought they loved her but little did she know that one day things would change that the delay simply meant there was another purpose in mind uh, they were not fattening her up for their, her own good, of course. They had roast pork and bacon and Christmas ham in mind. And poor old Pinky couldn't see it coming. Yeah, it's just like the scoffers, isn't it? Here in 2 Peter 3, thinking Jesus hadn't returned yet, so he wouldn't return at all. But Pinky's saying, uh, but Peter, Peter is saying, don't be like Pinky. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the delay of your master means it won't happen. Just because there's a delay doesn't mean it won't happen. So why the delay? Why does God take so long? Now, they were asking that question 2,000 years ago. Surely we want to ask that question today, don't we? Why the delay? If God's judgment is so sure, if his purpose is to wrap up this world, why hasn't he done it yet? Perhaps he's not interested. Maybe he's lazy or slow. Uh, we realise that the, the, the King James Version has a wonderful word here. for It's slack. What, why isn't God slack? Is he slack in not finishing the world? Well, Peter actually denies that in verse 9. He's not slow. Peter has another reason. It's not God's lack of interest. He's patient. Look at verse 8. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not slack in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Patience. I lose patience in a traffic jam in five minutes. I had to get to... Uh, Newtown, pretty much, yesterday. Seven kilometres, 45 minutes. 
But God's patience. Uh, but for God, a thousand years is like a snap of his finger. A thousand years. He's been here for eternity. I, I don't think we can even imagine what that must be like. God is not going to be hurried along by some impatient little scoffer who thinks he should come back soon. He's patient. He's moving his world along at his speed, not according to our timetable. And look at why he's patient. He's delaying things so that more people can repent and turn to him. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Down in verse 15, he puts it a little differently. Our Lord's patience means salvation. Now that's you or your loved ones. If you are not a Christian yet, one of the reasons God hasn't sent Jesus back yet to judge the world is he's waiting for you to repent. One of the reasons things are going on as they always have is because God is sustaining his world, preserving it, giving you longer to change your mind. One of the reasons he bears with the pain and the injustice and the suffering is because he is drawing patiently rebellious sinners like you to himself. If you are not yet a Christian, God is holding back because he's waiting for you. If you are not yet a Christian, you are the reason his finger is hovering on the button. How does that make you feel? What will you do about it? One day God's patience will run out. And if you are a Christian, your non-Christian friends and family are the reason God is holding off. Tell them. Well, finally, Peter gets to discussing the day itself. Now, if I was his editor here, I, I might tell him to expand this bit a bit, uh, this bit, uh, because, because he, he doesn't, he's frustratingly brief in what's actually going to happen. He's talked about creation and the flood and why God's taken so long to get around to this day, but then he gets to verse 10, he describes the day, the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. First point, no one will be expecting it. It'll be like a thief. No thief rings up to make an appointment. Uh, excuse me, um, I'm planning on coming around there at 2.30am this morning. Can you make sure the door's unlocked for me? No, no one says that. When you're robbed, it's the last thing you expect to happen. And what, how is it described? Well, this world will be laid bare, it'll be stripped back the old will be destroyed in some way and the rubbish will be burned up uh, verse 12 repeats those ideas and in its place verse 13, in keeping with this promise we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness Other passages fill out that picture a bit. 1 Corinthians 15 adds some more details about our resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, adds some descriptions about uh, Jesus coming down and us going up to meet him. 
At the moment, heaven and earth are separate. The Bible describes that in a physical way, going up and coming down. Probably we might, from our point of view, we might describe it as different dimensions or something like that. I don't exactly know how we describe it. But at the moment, those two realities are separate. God is distant. But on that day, that division will be removed. No longer heaven above and earth below. No longer a physical dimension separate from a spiritual one. But God and man dwelling together. Heaven and earth joined Two realities combined into one eternal place of righteousness. We don't know when. We don't know lots of the details, frustratingly. You know, as an editor, I'd say, come on, flesh this bit out a bit for me, please, Peter. We want to know more. It's enticing, isn't it, how brief the description is. But instead of fleshing out the detail, what does Peter do? He gives us something that's more important than the details. He gets practical how the future reality affects us today. What difference that truth makes for you today. Look at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now, if we were writing that verse, we might say, since everything will be destroyed in that way, here's what it's going to look like. But no, what sort of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day. Same thing down in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, to the new heaven and the new earth, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. The prospect of future judgment affects the kind of people we are to be today. Just like a couple expecting a baby, the prospect of that day influences the decisions they make today. I just want to stop for a moment and notice the structure of verses 10 to 14. It's it's quite intriguing. We were sort of puzzling a bit about it during the week at Bible study. And I wonder if it doesn't tell us something about motivation. So just notice, verse 10, everything will be destroyed. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed, live godly lives. Then verse 12 and 13, this is what the day will be like. And then verse 13, everything will be destroyed and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And then verse 14, since you're looking forward to that, make every effort. So we get these two descriptions of the day. And then underneath those, two commands, since this is happening, live godly lives. Now, once again, if I was the editor, I think Peter might do this, he'd say, you know, put those two descriptions together put the two instructions together. That's neat, that's tidy, but Peter doesn't do that. And I wonder if it's not because it's to do with motivation. So noticely verse 11, uh, firstly, is about looking back. Whereas second, verse 14, it's about looking forward. Verse 11 is about looking back. Since everything will be destroyed, don't chase after those things in the world. Hold on to the things in this world that are being destroyed. Hold on to them loosely. Knowing that affects your priorities today. Your long-term investment strategy. It's got nothing to do with the stock market because that's passing away. Your long-term investment strategy has to be in the kingdom of God. 
The stock market's going to be destroyed. Why would you worry about that? Since everything will be destroyed, live godly lives. Uh, The second since, since you're looking forward, get ready for that. Put on righteousness. Put on the uniform of righteousness so that you'll fit right in. Practice righteousness now so that you'll be part of the team. Flee what's being destroyed. Look forward to what's coming. And what do those two motivations do? Verse 11, you ought to live holy, godly lives. That's where the rubber hits the road. Holy, distinct and separate. Distinct and separate from the world that's being destroyed. Maybe that's a word for you. Maybe it's distinct and separate, not just from bad things, but from good things that are going to be destroyed. What are your priorities and attitudes towards your career, your peer group, your possessions, professional expectations? Those things will be destroyed. Maybe it's time to make some tough decisions about how you spend your time and what you spend your money on. Uh, Secondly, Peter says... Uh, He encourages us uh, not only to live holy, godly lives, but, verse 12, to look forward to the day. Look forward to the day. Uh, When you're on the right side of the... When you know you're on the right side of the law, justice is a wonderful thing. It's only those who've broken the law who fear justice. People who know they're innocent can't wait for the court case. So justice can be done. Long for the day, look forward to it. How appropriate that the new heaven and the new earth is described as the home of righteousness when justice will be done. I wonder if we struggle with that because for us life's pretty comfortable. I wonder if if we asked our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries where they're persecuted or uh, they're in famine and they haven't got enough to eat today, whether they longed for Christ's return whether they might be a bit more genuine than us. Uh, Hope is a powerful motivation to endure suffering. Look forward to the day. Thirdly, Peter says we're not just to live godly lives, we're not just to look forward to it in in a sort of passive way, but he actually says we're to speed its coming. Now, that's the the, the version of the the translation you've got in in the pews. Perhaps if you're following along on your phone or something and have something else, you might have a different word. A lot of translations seem to have hasten the day. Hasten the day. Uh, Doing what we can to actively encourage it to come. Well, how do we do that? Let me suggest two ways. Peter says God is waiting for people to turn to him. He's patient. He's chosen them. He's drawing them. And he's holding off judgment. And every day he puts up with pain and mess and sin... And every day he does that, he wants to see people in heaven as a, as a, a trade-off, a payoff to that delay. We can get on board with what God wants. Most of the time when he draws people to himself, he uses human means. He uses other people telling them about Jesus. I think we can hasten the day by introducing people to God, being part of his plans 
to draw people to himself. The sooner they come to him, the sooner we can all go home. I used to think that when I was leading youth group. Uh, The kids are playing ball, they're eating lollies, they're having a ball of a time. They could stay there all night. Who's who's tidying up? Uh, It's the leaders, isn't it? They're the ones who are running around and putting chairs away and wiping down tables and flicking light switches and, come on, kids, are you going home yet? They're speeding the end of youth group. (laughs) Come on, let's go home. We can speed Jesus' coming, I think. We can hasten the day by introducing people to him as Saviour and Lord. Second way we can speed his coming, I think, is by praying. If we pray something like the Lord's Prayer, we pray that God's kingdom will come, that his will will be done, uh, that his kingdom would come. Now, now in a sense, uh, God's kingdom is already here. God is king. Jesus is king. But it will only come completely when Jesus returns and every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him. So we can pray that that will happen, that Jesus will return. We can long for it. We can speed its coming. We can pray for it. Well, longing for Jesus' return, that's fine if you're a Christian, but maybe that's not you yet. But today you've heard God's call. You've heard about the warning that judgment is coming for those who don't know him. God is patient. He's not wanting you to perish. He's holding off judgment and waiting for you to come to him. And he's calling. God has given you everything you need, Peter says, to live a life that pleases him, a life that's found in knowing Jesus. He's given us all we need. In the words of Peter... Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. If you're not a Christian, turn to God, admit your sin, commit your future to serving Jesus. Today's a great day to begin that. Well, let me finish with the way Paul, uh, Peter finishes his letter uh, with a blessing, a prayer for each of us. Uh, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.